I'm Joe. And I'm Eric. And this is Speaking of Race. So today I'm really excited because we have a guest on the show that I've been trying to get on here for quite a long time. His name is Projit Mukherjee. He's an associate professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania. And guess what, Eric? What? He's a historian of science. Yay! I'm excited to have another historian of science. We're, we're real. There's more than one of us. <laughs> There's two of you. There are two of us. <laughs> Projit, welcome to Speaking of Race. Hi, Joe. Hi, Eric. Hi. <laughs> um, we're really excited to to have you here today. After the two episodes we did last summer when I was in India about Herbert Hope Risley and the colonial enterprise in India of attempting to sort of map race science onto caste, I got increasingly interested in that topic and started writing about it and came across your work project, which spans the 19th and 20th centuries in India. So both during and after the colonial period on the ways that race science was getting used and, and sort of what happened to it after the colonial period ended. Is that a fair uh, summary? Well, that's <laughs> excellent. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm delighted to hear that somebody reads the stuff I write <laughs> and, and that you found it useful is even better and more encouraging. Thank you. <laughs> you bet. And so really excited to have you on today to talk a bit more about how we've seen race science progressing in India since the end of the colonial period and even into the present. Sure. Um, so just to remind listeners, a whole year ago now, uh, Joe is in India, and we talked a fair amount about Herbert Hope Risley. He was the colonial administrator in India who commissioned the first census at the turn of the 20th century. And he was interesting to us because he had this relationship between race and caste that he sketched out through anthropometric means. Do you want to explain a little bit more about that, Joe? Yeah. So remember, everyone, anthropometric or anthropometry is just a fancy word for physical body measurements and the comparison of them between individuals or groups. Um, and so uh, Risley, as, as you just said, Eric, was commissioning the census, and he believed, based on the Aryan invasion theory, which had been introduced by William Jones, another colonial administrator, he believed that castes in India were essentially racial groups, and that because of caste endogamy or the practice of only marrying other people who are of the same caste as you, that caste groups in India would be these sort of pure, unchanged racial types that could be mapped onto the degree of Aryan blood that they did or did not have. So one of the ways that he went about this was in the 1901 census to borrow an anthropometric measurement called the nasal index from Paul Topinard, who was a French physician, physiologist. He would and call himself an anthropologist. He wrote the first textbook of anthropology in 1876. Thank you, historian. <laughs> um, in any case, he was a well-known scholar, had come up with this measurement of nasal index, which was supposed to correlate with race. And because part of the Aryan invasion idea involved this notion that higher caste Indians were more Aryan, because those folks were supposed to have pointier noses, Risley thought, well, nasal index would be a great way to try to sort of demonstrate concretely how Indian caste groups are really racist. Why don't we start with the stuff that we know? Let's start with Risley himself and how his work was received. And then maybe we can jump off from there. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Project wrote this fantastic paper with a really compelling title in 2017. The, the paper is called The Bengali Pharaoh, Upper Caste Aryanism, Pan-Egyptianism and Contested Histories of Biometric Nationalism in 20th Century Bengal. That's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> we'll link to that paper in the show notes. 
one thing that really stood out to me as I was reading it um, was this quote from you. Um, you mm-hmm. write, it's one of those delicious historical ironies that while the British imperial state of Risley's era had been reluctant to give a stable departmental home to Risley and anthropometry, the almost post-colonial state of the 1940s seemed far more sympathetic to Rislian raciology. So I want to unpack this a little bit for listeners because yeah. it gets right at the heart of questions I have about sort of what happened to the work that Risley was doing around race and caste. Mm-hmm. And you seem to be saying here that British colonial policy really wasn't very much affected by the work of people like Risley. Yeah. Is that is that right? That sounds surprising to me. Yeah, it is kind of, it goes against the uh, received historiographic wisdom in mm-hmm. South Asian history, as you know. Uh, but I'm I'm really relying here on the work of Chris Fuller. You know, it shows you uh, what really the grunt work of history can unravel. Everybody doing South Asian history has accepted that Risley had this large influence on mm-hmm. shaping uh, the discourse on caste and uh, classifying Indian society and ordering it, etc., but Chris Fuller has been doing a lot of really rigorous work on the Risley papers in the archives. And what he's been showing is that even when Risley was in office, his thinking on caste did not really affect colonial policy as much. He sees that if you look at major administrative enterprises that the colonial state was involved in, and he looks at two of these, the first partition of Bengal in 1905 and the land alienation schemes in the Punjab, two massive provinces of the empire, both were affected by these really big, significant legislative interventions. And Risley and these people were actually front and center involved in these developments. And their thinking on caste is completely sidelined in designing policy. It seems to be that Risley's impact on policymaking, even when he was in office, was rather limited. Hmm. It had academic value, but beyond that, whether it actually shaped policy is highly doubtful. Hmm. Okay, interesting. It seems, though, like your work is saying, and this is different than Chris's work, is that Risley's work does have an impact. It's just that his impact is delayed. So we would expect that Risley's stuff would have come up at the same time that other anthropometric stuff is coming up elsewhere in the British Empire. So mm-hmm. all the stuff that's related to Galton's work in the in the 19, around 1900 to 1910, and then after that, Carl Pearson's work. Or right. in, in France in the 1880s and 1890s, there's Paul Topinard or Paul Broca. Mm-hmm. But it seems like what you're saying is, no, it didn't really happen in India at that time. But it does come back, and it comes back mm-hmm. right around the World War II era, which is, A, really late. It's when it seems like the right. rest of the West is kind of going away from this stuff. And B, why in the world would it not be a big deal when Risley was there? Why is that? Well, I think it starts to really have an impact in the, from the early 1920s. Okay. Hmm. It kind of gathers momentum over the next uh, couple of decades in the interwar years and starts to peak in the 40s. Now, the reason it sort of starts up again in the 20s is, I think, directly a result of the fact that after the First World War, the scientific services in India are rapidly Indianized. Hmm. So while there were Indians in the scientific services throughout the 19th century, uh, they were mostly in the lower echelons of the colonial services and very few were able to get to the top positions because of various racial policies, etc. But after the First World War, that changes, both because 
you don't have as many Britons wanting to come out and do imperial service. So there's a manpower crisis as well as because the British are talking of devolving power at this point. So you get the first kind of provincial elected assemblies. And so there's an Indianization of the state. And I think that actually the Indian intellectuals are way more interested in Risley than the British were. Hmm. And so that is a uh, that is a curious quirk. So there are people even in Risley's time who take up Risley often to actually dispute some of his specific conclusions, not j- dispute the framework that he was using. So particularly this is where Aryanism comes in. So there's a man called uh, Ramprasad Chondo, a Bengali schoolmaster, who is an amateur uh, kind of anthropometrist, but eventually the government gives him leave and makes him a special officer. Then he also has backing from indigenous elites who finance his project, and the state also gives him some support eventually. This is in the 19-teens. And he is engaging a lot with Risley, but his point is not to dispute the totality of Risley's project, but just to say that Risley had got it wrong about upper caste Bengalis, that upper caste Bengalis are actually Aryans. So all this is happening around the tail end of Risley's Indian career. But these people then have students and people are influenced by them. And those guys come up in the 20s. So people like B.S. Guha, who's often referred to as the father of Indian anthropology today. There's um, also... P.C. Mahalanobis, who would go on to be the chairman of the planning commission under Nehru after India becomes independence. And these people come of age in the 20s, and they are really interested in mathematization, trying to upgrade Risley. So Mahalanobis does a lot, uh, which I mentioned in that article that Joe kindly mentioned. Mahalanobis does quite a bit to resurrect Risley. And so I think that starts it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Malanobis comes up a lot in your work. Can you tell us a little bit more about him and who he was and what he did? Yeah, Malanobis is a really interesting figure. Most people in India have heard of him, so he's still well remembered in India. He started a set of institutions called the Indian Statistical Institute, which is still very much a flagship institution. He was, as I mentioned, chairman of the Planning Commission under Nehru, which was following the Soviet model, the big body in the state that organized everything. But beyond that, he's also an interesting figure in that originally he was training to be a physicist at Cambridge when the First World War started and he couldn't complete his degree. Uh, So he went back to India, hoping to come back and finish his degree. But when he boarded the ship, he bought Carl Pearson's journal, Biometrica, a full set of it, uh, read it on the ship back. And by the time he got there, he was a complete convert uh, of statistics. He then started doing statistics. Uh, He was also very close to the well-known poet and Nobel Prize winner, Rabindranath Tagore. Uh, Mm -hmm. He was almost like a son to him. So he had kind of socialist politics as well, or slightly left-leaning socialist politics. And he (laughs) gets into statistics. He never goes back to Cambridge. He does go back briefly in the 20s as a research assistant to Pearson and has a big falling out with Pearson. Hmm. Um, He's mostly remembered today as an institution builder, as a person who does a lot for the discipline of statistics, both internationally as well as in India. But his race work has been largely forgotten, even Mm. though the very first published papers that Mahalanobis publishes in the early 1920s are on race. Mm. So he originally is very much into race. There's something called the D-square statistics, which 
statisticians still use, which he developed, and that is actually originally developed as a counter to Carl Pearson's statistical tool called the coefficient of racial likeness, the CRL. So the D square is supposed to be a repost to that. So yeah, uh, he's a very interesting figure and he's well known, but his work on race is not as well known. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating that he's hanging around with these people who are both, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, sort of founding fathers of modern statistics, but at the same time, eugenicists and people who are very interested in race theory. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and if you read his work on Risley, that's absolutely clear. He literally resurrects Risley and he has like a number of papers in the 20s and 30s on Risley where he's saying, you know, Risley, he may have got some of the specifics wrong, but his data set is absolutely valid and we should use this, which is you know runs counter to our received historiographic wisdom if you go to any general introductory South Asian history course, if you hear about Risley, he's always presented as this great villain. Um, so what was Malinobus's interest in Risley? What, what did he take from Risley and what did he like about it and what did he try to do with it? So that's why I think this transition from physical anthropology to biometrics on the one side, and this is also the period that you have the earliest forms of genetics coming up. Mm. Let me cut in and explain for a second. So another part of your work looks at the the transition, as you just said, between uh, sort of anthropometric work, that is the measurement of visible characteristics as a way to try to delineate race, Mm -hmm. from that to the sort of biometric measurement of invisible things such as blood type or as you're saying early genetics and so um you have the 2014 paper which i'll make sure to link to as well called from serosocial to sanguinary identities past transnational race science and the shifting metonymies of blood group b in india circa 1918 to 1960 Mm -hmm. so Yes, please tell us a bit more about that transition from sort of the measurement of visible things to the measurement of invisible things and what that had to do with Malinobis and Risley. So one of the things that's happening is, uh, so blood groups are kind of discovered in the first decade of the 20th century. Mm. And um, blood group inheritance is uh, follows very simple Mendelian laws of genetics. So it's one of the first places where Mendelian genetics can be really followed through mm. and uh, understood. And when the First World War happens, it all it gets really interesting with this uh, Polish-Jewish couple, Ludwig and Hannah Hirschfeld. They're pacifists, so they don't want to fight, but they want to do their bit for the war. So they go to, to Greece and they're basically hanging out there uh, with the Serbian troops that have been pushed out. It's like most of World War I, there's not much action and everybody's just sitting around waiting for something to happen. And so there are all these troops and uh, Ludwig and Hannah Hirschfeld have nothing to do over there. And they had been working on blood group uh, research in Vienna. So they think that oh, this is great. We can try out and see whether there are racial differences in the blood groups people have. Mm. And because there are British and French imperial troops, there are people from lots of different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. So they do these uh, blood group tests and they come up with this theory that actually that blood group A originated amongst Caucasians and blood group B possibly originated somewhere in India. And the frequency of distribution of these blood groups is the frequency to which Aryans and non-Aryans have mixed. So every racial group is a mixture of Aryan and non-Aryan. Actually, sorry, they don't say Aryan. That is what the Indians say. They say Caucasians. So Caucasians and um, 
non-Caucasians have mixed to create these groups. And so you have this biochemic index, which is basically the frequency of blood groups appearing in each group. And if you have a larger frequency of A blood groups, then you're closer to the Caucasians. If you have a larger proportion of B blood groups, you're closer to Indians. Hmm. Uh, So that's his theory. Now, this becomes pretty big pretty quickly. The papers are published in English after the World War. And in the 20s, a lot of people take this up. And an entire discipline is born called seroanthropology or seroanthropology, where people are basically just taking blood groups and working out frequencies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, they start tabulating these frequencies and that gets to India. And then people in India are like, wait, <laughs> You thought all Indians were the same. That's not true. <laughs> we, we're all different people and we've got to like distinguish by caste and by region. And so all these studies start up from the late 20s of people starting out with the Hirschfeld model, but then doing that kind of grouping and frequency calculation for different groups within South Asia. And gradually there begins to emerge this idea that Lower castes have higher B blood group frequencies. And the more to the east and south you go, you have more B blood group frequencies. And so this then starts resonating with the older discourse on Aryan, non-Aryan, where, of course, as you Mm. already know, I'm sure that there was this whole belief that the populations to the northwest of the subcontinent are more Aryan And the caste hierarchy also, the higher the caste, they're more Aryan. So that then starts mapping onto this kind of analysis of blood group frequencies. Mm. Yeah, so that was the old uh, idea introduced by William Jones during the, when was that? The late? 18th 18th century, yeah. yeah. 18th century idea, right, of the Aryan invasion theory, which we have talked about on the podcast before. That idea did not go away. Yeah, not at all. It's still there. What forms is it taking in the present? Well, it's it's also got really complicated now because it's the politics around it has has kind of flipped 180 degrees. Mm. So um, back in the day, in the 19th century, when the British were pushing this, it was a kind of Hindu right wing which supported this idea of Aryan invasion and claimed that upper caste Hindus were closer to Europeans, etc. And now, because of electoral democracy, and as you know, the Hindu right wing is in power now. So they've like really come up in a big way in the last couple of decades. And but because of electoral democracy, now they claim that there's no racial distinction, that caste was purely optional, and that there was it wasn't as oppressive. And so actually what's happened now is that Dalit activists or lower caste activists mm-hmm. want to insist that, no, there is a significant difference between upper castes and lower castes because invasion or no invasion, people have not been allowed to intermarry and people have been ostracized from society for very long, etc. So now it's the right wing which wants to say that there was no invasion and it's Dalit activists who want to say, well, maybe not invasion, but they are very different people. Upper castes are different people. Mm. So, So it's become really difficult and that's also resonating with this rise of new genetic studies. Uh Also, the genetic studies themselves are not necessarily, I mean, some of the studies are Uh, more careful and they don't really want to get into this debate and make these claims but they play out in the media in a way that is always referring to this 
either invasion happened or didn't happen, depending on which media source you're looking at. Hmm. So this has become really a minefield now. Everything old is new again, right? Yeah, yeah. So what about the concept that you refer to as aesthetic non-Aryanness in the 2017 paper that we just began this whole discussion with, my understanding is what you mean by that is that some groups in India are identifying explicitly with not appearing to be or not looking Aryan. What's going on with that in the present? I, I really don't like writing sort of teleological histories where everybody is singing from the same sheet. <laughs> One of the things I find most interesting about history is that there's never perfect consensus about anything good or bad mm-hmm. it's always messy so i was like everybody seems to be buying into a version of the other of this kind of arianism uh, in the 20s and 30s and 40s is there anybody who's pushing back against this mm-hmm. i mean there are of course lower caste groups and their intellectuals but they are very ill represented in the scientific world in looking for that i stumbled upon this curious group of people who were not exactly scientists. They were artists, but they were also interested in folk culture. So, you know, it's also anthropology at this point. It's early days for anthropology as a discipline as well. And one half of it is branching off more and more from anthropometry towards uh, seroanthropology and more biometrics and stuff like that. Whereas another half is getting into what probably today we will recognize as cultural anthropology, which in India is very interested in folk culture, mm-hmm. interested in non-elite rural kind of cultures. Mm-hmm. And from amongst those people, there are a group of intellectuals who emerge who are very interested in folk arts and arts and crafts. And one of them start to propose this new way of working out the histories of Uh, social groups, which this particular person, Shudhangshu Kumar Rai, wants to call craftology. And what he means by that is, instead of trying to work out where we came from by taking biometric measurements and comparing us, we should actually compare the artistic productions of any particular group. Hmm. And if we look at how, what art they produce, what in today's language we'll call material culture, what kind of material culture we produce, and if we compare the the patterns, the shapes, the styles, then we can work out a very different, within quotes, racial history. A racial history, let's say, which is not embodied in the kind of somatic characteristics of your body, but in the cultural characteristics of your artistic production. And they also get influenced by Pan-Africanism to some extent. Mm -hmm. A certain type of Pan-Africanism which appropriates old Egyptology and sees Egypt as the fount of a non-Aryan civilization. Mm -hmm. And so they come up with this, like, what today seems like a crazy theory that one of Pharaoh Tutankhamun's sons had been exiled, and he, along with his black African followers, came and settled somewhere in Bengal, and Mm -hmm. that most Bengalis are descended from him and that group of black African followers. So it's this... Really weird theory, but I love its politics because it's Mm -hmm. trying to get away from the sort of somatic determinism. It's trying to actually, at this moment of decolonization, trying to find common cause with sort of the decolonizing nations of Black Africa rather than positing kinship with the colonizing forces. Mm -hmm. And it, it also resonates and it draws some sustenance from Nehruvian ideas of the non aligned movement, which 
Nehru and Nasser and people tried to propose it in the Cold War that we don't have to belong to either bloc. There could be a non-aligned movement. So, so it draws on all of that and it goes nowhere, but it doesn't die out either. I mean, mm. their books are banned by international scholars saying this guy is completely barking up the wrong tree. But it keeps circulating. In, so Bengali writing, even in the 80s, by that time it was out of the academia, but you had amateurs who were still writing books about this theory. Of course, the people who are pushing the biometrics have state power behind them. Their influence has grown in post-colonial India. But this other stripe of like non-Aryanism, which is based on aesthetics rather than somatics, mm-hmm. doesn't seem to have gone away. Oh, that's fascinating. So aesthetic refers not to physical human aesthetics, but to sort of uh, the aesthetics of material culture, as you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Got it, got mm. it. That's That approach of sort of comparing say, patterns of art, et cetera, et cetera. It's also very archaeological yeah, in some ways. Yeah, it's old. Yeah. yeah, totally. And I think there are actually links with archaeology. They are drawing on archaeology. Yeah, but I want to go back and work out more of this, like what's going on with craftology. I think it it is learning a lot from archaeology. They are developing methods that are kind of related to archaeology, but they're also doing a lot of field surveys and collecting folk arts so mm-hmm. like and they're really interested in very mundane forms of artistic production so small uh, say idols and icons that are produced for various rituals uh, baskets quilts things like that mm-hmm. i have a i have a sort of a, a big broad question can i ask it yeah go yeah, for it well, so in the use of all these biometric measurements by the different groups i'm sort i sort of want to get your sense of is the goal here to show unity so you might see all these different groups but what you're trying to show is that underneath all of the this obvious uh, variation there is unity that could be one way another way might be to show bipolarity so the 19th century sense that there is the northern indians that are aryan and then there's the southern dravidian indians and you're trying to show that there are these two different groups that oppose each other and you're just trying to see which of these two your group more identifies with or is the goal a third possible way that it could be used is to identify that there's just this fragmentation there's just lots of different kinds of groups and there isn't really any relationship that anyone can source between any of the different groups. They're just groups, <laughs> just lots of groups. Right. How, is, right. how is it mostly used? Does that question make sense? Yeah, it, it does make a lot of sense. And it's one of the things I'm trying to work out. And there are, at different moments, they're pursuing different ends. This is part of the challenge of trying to write all this as a single book, that mm-hmm. there are so many different projects they're serving at different points. So, for instance, one of the things I write about in that serosocial to sanguinary paper that Joe mentioned is in Western India, there was a large province called the Bombay Presidency. Now, Bombay Presidency, after independence, there's a push to break that up into two states, which eventually happens and you get what is today called Maharashtra and what is called Gujarat. Now, in breaking this up, there's a largely forested area called the Dangs, which lie kind of on the border of these two. And the forest dwelling groups in this region, the Dangis, there were lots of groups. And it wasn't clear whether that area should be part of Gujarat or part of Maharashtra, because the division was originally supposed to be on the basis of language. But these groups did not really speak either language. They had their own languages. And so in trying to carve this up, one of the groups agitating for the breakup of the um, state gets in 
a couple of these biometricists, so D.N. Majumdar, another Cambridge-trained physical anthropologist, and Iravati Karve, who trained in Berlin, and the two of them together conduct surveys. And their project there is to find out simply whether the people of the Dangs are closer physically to the Gujaratis or the Marathis. Hmm. So that's a very specific project. But you also have a larger project in the 20s and 30s, which I think are represented perhaps mostly by Mahalanobis on the one side and B.S. Guha, who's the founder of the Anthropological Survey of India. And Guha is actually the first Indian to get a PhD in anthropology from a foreign university. He gets his PhD from Harvard in the early 20s. And Guha wants to prove that upper caste Hindus across India are more closely related to each other than to their regional lower caste groups. Mm. Whereas Mahalanobis is interested in proving the opposite, that caste groups are vertically closer to each other than horizontally. Mm-hmm. So, so Mahalanobis wants to prove, for instance, that Bengali Brahmins are much closer to lower caste Bengalis than to UP Brahmins. This, of course, resonates with different kinds of nationalism. And so whether you want a pan-Indian nationalism or you think that regional nationalisms are the way to go. After independence, most of this gets covered up by the Nehruvian motto, which Nehru takes on from the Habsburgs, of course, of unity in diversity, Mm -hmm. which is actually a bit of a dead letter in cultural spheres, I think this unity in diversity has taken on actually a pretty pernicious turn where the default unity is seen to be some kind of a lowest common denominator Hinduism. Mm. But in terms of biometrics, I don't think the unity part of unity in diversity actually has any meaning. Mm. If you see, for instance, where all this is really coming to a boil in the contemporary present is India's version of the HapMap, which is the Indian Genome Variation Database. Mm -hmm. And if you see that, it's basically just talking of, I think they say there are 4,600 something uh, communities which are separate pools. And so it's not going in the direction that, say, the Mexican uh, Genome Project has gone, where they are trying to prove that all Mexicans are equally mixed. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's a great answer. Wow. Awesome. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Projit Mukherjee, for coming on Speaking of Race, for talking with us about your work. And we look forward to following it as it continues to develop. Yeah. Thank you so much for that fascinating conversation. I have a lot to think about now. (laughs) Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me on the show. And thanks for reading my work and engaging with it. All right. I'm Eric, the historian of science. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist, and you've been listening to Speaking of Race. Find us on Twitter at Speaking of Race and Instagram, same, and on Facebook at SOR Podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs> we won't or see we people. won't see you. We'll You'll hear, hear you. Us. You'll hear us. Someone we won't even will hear, hear you. Somebody. Such a one directional relationship. Things will happen, and those <laughs> things will be in the future. <laughs>